Welcome to this special event on COVID-19, Implications for Global and Country-Level Food Security, Nutrition, and Poverty. We hope all of you are fine and safe wherever you are. I'm Rajal Pandya-Loj, Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and I will be moderating this event. COVID-19 threatens devastating impacts on food security, poverty, and malnutrition, particularly in developing countries. IFPRI researchers are taking an early look at the pandemic's global and country-level implications. You can find IFPRI's COVID resources, analysis, and numerous blogs at our COVID Spotlight page at www.ifpri.org or you can Google IFPRI and COVID-19. Thank you for those of you who are joining this special virtual event. And thank you to those of you who are going to be watching this recording in the days to come. We are eager to hear from all of you to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations. Please submit your questions using the chat box. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at hashtag IFPRI live. And you can post questions on Twitter during the Q&A by using the hashtag AskIFPRI. And for our friends from the media, if you have any specific questions or queries, please feel free to contact our media team. You can find the contact details at ifpri.org. We have an exciting program lined up for you. And without further ado, I would like to call on our Director General of IFPRI, Yo Swinnan, to make introductory remarks. Over to you, Yo. Thank you. Thank you very much, Raju. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. COVID-19 is having dramatic impacts in our lives and continues to spread across the globe. As the virus spreads in Latin America and Africa and South Asia, with this huge number of poor people, all of us are concerned about the impact on food security, nutrition, and poverty. There are many things that we do not know yet, but there are some things that we have learned in the meantime. COVID-19 will have significant impacts on global food security, on nutrition, and on poverty. The impact is likely to differ from the last food crisis in 2007, 8, 9, because the food price spikes then work through a different mechanism than COVID today. We also know that the impact of COVID is gonna be heterogeneous. That means that it has different impacts for different food systems and for people in different environments. One of these differential effects is how the poor are affected versus people with higher income levels. It will disproportionately have a negative impact on the poor because of a number of factors. First, the global recession will have larger effect on poor people's incomes and therefore on their food security and their nutrition. Among the productive assets that COVID is affecting directly, this is mostly on labor and more particularly on physical labor. Poor people's principal apps, assets. They typically don't have land, they don't have a lot of capital, they don't have email or Skype. They basically rely on going outside and work. And this, of course, is very difficult today. COVID-19 will also cause more disruption in private sector value chains in poor countries, again, because they are much more labor intensive than our supermarkets in rich countries. COVID-19 will cause disruptions in public sector program, which basically contribute to food, nutrition, health, and poverty, again, disproportionately benefiting poor people in uh, poor countries. Finally, poor countries have lower capacities to compensate for declining incomes. 
Now, there's also a lot we do not know yet. We don't know for sure, or we don't have a good assessment how fast COVID will spread in developing countries. And there's a lot of discussion about what the best policies are to protect people, their health, their economic effects, and to protect their welfare in general. As fiscal resources and budgets are gonna be stretched, it is crucial that policies are targeted. They're targeted to those most needing it. Priority setting of policies is very important. It's also important not only to introduce good policies, but to prevent introduction of bad policies. We see now that many countries are intro introducing trade barriers for food, and this is exacerbating the problems rather than helping them. This is where IFPRI can play a role, an important role. The research we do at IFPRI is designed to help provide knowledge and answers on how to deal as best as possible with the COVID crisis. We have early on launched a series of studies and we have uh, produced early results in our blog series as Rajul already referred to. We have covering a number of issues covering different regions, both global effects as in different countries in Africa, China, India, Bangladesh, etc. So the panel today is reflecting the different focal points that um, if we have both focusing on global effects and local effects, it also reflects the different methodological capacities or capabilities that IFPRI has. So David Laborde, who will present first, he will use global models to basically assess or simulate global impacts of COVID and look at how the world as a whole is affected. James Sturlow, who is presenting last, he will also use model and simulation results, but he focused in detail on country level effects and in particularly on the number of countries in Africa. In between, we'll have two presentations from the two largest populations in the world, India and China. Chabo Chang will present results using survey data, what that happened in China and what we can learn from the Chinese experience. Unima Menon will discuss our early insights from the outbreak in India, where the world is bracing for dramatic impacts. And with that, I'm going to give the floor to the panelists. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yo, for your introductory remarks. Our next speaker is David Laborde, Senior Research Fellow in the Markets, Trade and Institutions Division at IFPRI. Over to you, David. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. So I'm going to try to give you the big picture of some of the economic impact and consequences for the food system of the current crisis, knowing that the crisis is still developing and uh, anything that I will say is based on some assumption and may change from one day to another. So next slide, please. So one of the key questions uh, that, that we have is how we can move from this health crisis to actually uh, a food security crisis. And um, just to follow the blueprint that Joswinen uh, has just uh, laid down, there are three important things. First is what would be the impact in terms of economic crisis income for the poor in particular. You see on my slide that many of the poor people are actually living on a day-by-day -day, uh, business or, or job, and they need this income to feed their family. Then we have to wonder how the supply side is reacting, how the food system, how we produce food or, or move food around. And here also globally, uh, there are good news and a few potentially bad news. But at the end, one of the uh, main issue is how people react. Households, and on my slide you see this type of crisis, and many of you may have seen it in, in their local grocery shop. But at the same time, we also have the fact that policymakers may uh, make bad choices. So what is the impact of the economic crisis? And here you have some uh, results from our uh, global model that 
will be based on some scenario and combined with household level data give us estimates on, on poverty. So now we are talking about um, main scenario where we are losing 5% of growth compared to what was expected. And this is the first message you have to carry on. In the 2007-2008 price crisis, where food prices were high, you have winners and losers. Today, we are in a global recession and we are all losers. But as has been said before, we are not equal in front of these losses. Depending on your level of skills, for instance, you can, find, uh, you can work from home, like we are doing today, or, or not. So when you put this in, in, in this type of model, what is the story that you, you actually get? And even if we are losing 5% of growth in terms of GDP, poverty can increase by up to 20%. So the effect on poverty can be pretty strong. In uh, this result, we are not taking into account uh, policy response and stimulus packets from the South, but what is happening in, in Europe and uh, uh, in the US, for example, have been considered. The second message you can see on my slide is that Africa and South Asia will be hotspot in terms of the actual increase of poor people. So globally, we talk up to 140 million additional extremely poor people, and 80 million of them will be in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's a specific region of interest, and my colleague will discuss about it. But South Asia will also be a hotspot. And last but not least, Actually, we see that the real area, the farming sectors can be more resilient. And the increase of poverty that we see will be more important in urban center than in a real area. But we still talk about an increase of 15% of uh, extremely poor people in a rural region. So uh, next slide, please. So serious concern about income and we need to protect this. What is happening on the supply side and the global supply side? So far, we have seen some local distortion, but uh, globally, there is no major issue. Most of the agricultural prices were declining before the crisis and continue to decline. There is some tension on wheat and rice, and I will come back to, to this issue soon. But we have overall relatively large stocks, so at the world level, for key staples, we are in a very different situation, for instance, than more than 10 years ago. Next slide, please. So finally, what may help us to go to a deeper crisis or uh, have a um, better way to, to deal with that? But it's going to be mainly driven also by the type of policy response we have. And one of the big issues is what is your cooperative approach in terms of trade and food trade of the issue? And what we have seen so far is a few countries have tried to limit their export of staple goods like rice uh, from Vietnam and wheat from uh, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. All of these measures doesn't have the same effect. Once again, we are not in the situation than 10 years ago, meaning that currently we just have 17 countries that start to take measure. 10 years ago, we were talking about 33 countries. The relatively share of global trade impacted today is less than 1%. If we consider how it can be impacted by all the measures on the table, but some of them are not binding, it would be 4%. So yes, growing risk. We don't want to see a domino effect. We want to make sure that countries show also solidarity about how they use the global um, food trade system as a, a coping strategy. Thank you very much. Thank you, David, for your remarks. Our next presenter is Xiaobo Zhang, Senior Research Fellow at the Development Strategy and Governance Division of IFPRI. Xiaobo, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Raju. Next slide, please. 
today I'm going to talk about two points. First, how did China cope with the food problem under the lockdown? Secondly, I'm going to talk about the impact on small and medium-sized enterprises, namely SMEs, using our primary pre, uh, uh, survey. As when China launched the lockdown on January 23rd, it was right before the Chinese New Year. Traditional, traditionally, Chinese households stored food for at least two weeks for the holidays. So in the first two weeks, they didn't need to go outside for grocery shopping. But after two weeks, many households ran out of groceries. Next slide. At this stage, the online delivery system played an incredibly important role in meeting the needs. In the last several years, China has established a few quite large online platforms. During the pandemic, more than 3 million multi-cycle delivery drivers uh, serve customers, serve more than 500 million customers. During the, this period, the delivery of grocery has increased by more than 400% percentage. So the online delivery system has largely helped China cope with the short-term uh, food uh, consumption problems. Next slide. In the second part, I'm going to talk about the impact on small and medium enterprises. Why do we talk about SMEs? Because it is so important. SMEs account for 90% of employment in China, generate 70% of GDP. Even for the world as a whole, SMEs in China contribute to about 30% of worldwide GDP growth last year. In order to understand the performance of MSEs, our team at the Peking University in China launched a big survey on SMEs in the last several years. Next slide. So after the outbreak of coronavirus, our team launched a rapid four interviews with a representative sample of SMEs previously surveyed in our enterprise survey for innovation and entrepreneurship uh, conducted in between 2017 and 2019. We successfully surveyed 2,500 enterprises. So our survey covered quite a few questions ranging from the major challenges SMEs face, what are their response to the challenges, and what are the major policy impact on them. The official date of resume production outside Hubei province, the epic center of the pandemic, is February 10th. So our survey started on February 11th. They asked the operational status of the SMEs on February 10th. According to our survey, by February 10th, about 80% of MEs didn't resume production. The direct loss of shutting down 80% of SMEs for months is equivalent to 0.66 trillion US dollars. According to our survey, 14% of SMEs wouldn't be able to last beyond a month, while 50% wouldn't be able to last beyond three months. So if 14% of enterprises closed for one month. That means our employment rate would increase by 12.6%. You can see there was huge impact on SMEs and also on employment. Next slide. 
there's also a large variations across sectors and across regions. Here we zoom in the agriculture-related business. As China locked down, many villages set up road barriers, as shown in the picture on the left. As a result of feed supplies couldn't deliver to livestock farms, animals starved to death, uh, the animal product couldn't be tra uh, transported to stores. They caused a lot, uh, caused a disruption in logistics. According to our survey, the agriculture business experienced the highest proportion of disruption in logistics, that is 36 percentage uh, point, much higher than heavy industry and the service sector. Next, please. Uh, so here, I use an extreme example to highlight uh, the plight, the impact of disruption in logistics on a beekeeper. This beekeeper of 20 years committed suicide because his truck of beehives was not allowed to travel across regions to provide pollination services uh, as scheduled. His bees starved to death. There's also an intended consequence on the agriculture sector. Without pollination, the yield of many cash crops would decline with expect to see a larger impact on the road. All survey was up to the mid-February. So we are planning to launch the second wave of survey in late this month or early next month. So stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shabo, for your remarks. Our next presenter is Purnima Menon, Senior Research Fellow in IFPRI's Poverty, Health and Nutrition Division, based in New Delhi. Over to you, Purnima. Thank you, Raju, uh, and good evening to everyone from New Delhi, India. Uh, can I have the next slide, please? Um, we don't have a lot of data from India yet. COVID-19 has uh, started to, um, the number of cases have started to increase, uh, and the government has already taken a range of policy measures to address this. In my remarks, I want to address two things. First, the impact of malnutrition on COVID-19 in India, and second, the impact of COVID-19 and associated policy measures for malnutrition itself. So on the first point, um, what we know to date about um, malnutrition and its impacts on, uh, on the health and its implications for the health impacts of COVID-19 um, are really not very much. Um, the, this is really uncharted territory in terms of the intersection of um, undernutrition in particular and COVID-19. Um, so in a sense, India and the evolution of the disease uh, here uh, will offer the world uh, some really uh, critical insights on how an underlying base of still a fairly high degree of undernutrition, especially among children, uh, is going to uh, impact on the uh, susceptibility to the disease as well as the consequences of being uh, infected. So really the health impacts. Uh, the second aspect of malnutrition uh, in India is that um, uh, there is a fairly high, um, high level of um, non-communicable diseases, things that are the now known comorbidities that affect the sequelae of COVID-19, even among young adults in India. And so we could see some, um, some impacts there. But again, it's very, it's absolutely uncharted territory and a lot remains to be known. Um, next slide, please. Um, this, the second uh, point that I, I want to uh, cover is really that um, the, uh, 
there is likely to be, as, as you mentioned, uh, a significant impact of COVID-19 itself on malnutrition. Uh, but what we can say from what we've studied about malnutrition itself and the, the kinds of things that affect it is that the impact will occur through multiple pathways um, and that some of this will play out not uh, necessarily in the immediate in the immediate term, but that we are likely to see short, medium, and long-term impacts. Uh, the impacts of COVID-19 on malnutrition in India um, and really in, in many other such parts of the world uh, are likely to come uh, in two different ways. First is the direct impact of the disease itself on the hum human body. Uh, but the second is a more complex set of, uh, set of pathways, and that's going to come uh, from the impact of the policy measures that are taken to, to tackle the spread of the disease. Um, in India at this point in time, these include um, a fairly substantial lockdown. Uh, they include some changes to health and nutrition programs which are necessitated by um, the need for social distancing. Um, and they also include a range of compensatory changes to social protection programs. Now, the lockdown itself is going to have uh, economy-wide impacts, which are going to uh, come from, from impacts on incomes and wages, on migration, which in turn has a, a range of gendered impacts as well, uh, food, as well as the agriculture, food supply, and food uh, prices. Um, so the set of three sort of big ticket changes uh, in the context of India are likely to change what we know are very important drivers of malnutrition. These are hunger and food security at the household level, a range of issues related to care and the ability for families to care for vulnerable household members, uh, such as women and children. Um, the poverty impacts could also have knockdown effects on, on healthcare and sanitation. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, we know that there's going to be very heterogeneous changes here in terms of um, how these pathways play out um, across the country in different states and for different income groups. Together, these are likely to contribute to fairly substantial uh, changes to diets, to uh, health and illness which in turn we expect will have impacts on malnutrition. So let me just reiterate again that COVID-19's impact on malnutrition in India um, uh, is likely to be both direct and indirect. The indirect effects uh, on those not necessarily infected by, by the virus will occur through a range of different pathways and will occur over um, a, a, a fairly long period of time. Uh, and we know that there, are, there will be um, differential impacts because the, the nature of social inequities um, and governance uh, differentials is, is going to have a difference. Uh, what does this mean for India and for, uh, for other countries in, in this position? Uh, it means that we must acknowledge um, that there will be a range of unknowns and it means that a, a sort of accompanying research investment to understand the impacts of the, the policy measures um, uh, is, and therefore then the impact of COVID-19 on outcomes as critical as uh, malnutrition will be crucial. Uh, India's leadership on the national nutrition mission has been exemplary. Um, a range of different things have happened uh, in very positive directions in the last few years for malnutrition. And the last thing we need is, is for COVID-19 to, to wipe away some of those effects. So this is really something we need to keep uh, a close eye on. Thank you so much. 
Purnima, thank you so much for your remarks. Before I come to our next speaker, I'd like to remind all of you watching our event that you can submit your brief questions in the chat box. We will be coming to the Q&A session soon, so we invite you to go ahead and submit your questions. Our next speaker is James Thurlow. James is a Senior Research Fellow in the Development Strategy and Governance Division at IFPRI. And James, over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Rajul. So here at IFPRI, we are um, conducting a series of country studies led by our country programs based all over the world and in collaboration with local and government partners. The goal of these studies is to estimate the economy-wide impacts of the pandemic, um, to assess the, uh, the exposure of the food system, and to identify particularly vulnerable um, population groups. Now to measure the full economic cost of the crisis, we need to take into account the domestic policies that the lockdown and social distancing policies that countries themselves are implementing, as well as the global shocks that they are facing because of the lockdown policies that other countries are implementing. So in our analysis, we measure the effects of both those domestic policies and the global shocks that affect all sectors of the economy and we trace or track the knock-on effects that are happening throughout and across um, supply chains. Now, many of these studies are still ongoing, but three clear messages are already emerging. The first is that the economic costs that developing countries are shouldering are substantial. So if you take Nigeria and South Africa, for example, Africa's two largest economies, we estimate that GDP this quarter could be as much as a third lower than it would have been without the pandemic. Right? That's an enormous cost. Of course, the final cost for this year and beyond will depend on how long those lockdown policies um, are in place and how quickly these economies are able to recover. And these are just things that we don't know yet. What we can say with some certainty is that, the, um, that, the, um, that this crisis will impose much larger and more rapid um, disruptions or contractions of economic activity than what was observed in recent crises. And we're also finding in most countries, um, and unlike previous crises, that um, uh, it is the domestic policies rather than those global shocks that are causing most of the economic costs, at least for now, right, and based on our current expectations. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is that food supply chains are exposed even though most, most governments are considering food as essential and are exempting food supply chains from lockdown policies. So in Nigeria, for example, where we think the economy this year, not just this quarter, but this year could contract by as much as 8%, we estimate that the agri-food system may also contract by as much as 5%. Now, most of our estimated impacts on food systems are indirect, and that's because farming and food processing are typically exempted from those lockdown policies. But there is one part of the food system that is directly affected, and that's food services. In fact, restaurants and hotels are a common and early target for most lockdown policies. Now, we know that these food services are quite only a small part of the food system in developing countries, but they are particularly important in urban areas. What's even more concerning for us at IFPRI is that some governments are also starting to impose partial lockdowns of informal food retailers. So if you, if you go back to Nigeria again, the government is, has closed certain food markets in the city of Lagos, and they're limiting food trading times in its, two, in its major cities to only four hours every other day. 
Now, we've yet to see how this is going to play out, but what is clear is that if this does prevent consumers from getting access or buying food, this could quickly become the major source of economic costs in most countries, economy-wide. Right? It would certainly overshadow any of the other damages that we are currently seeing um, in the food system. Right. So, um, so again, this is a crisis of food access as opposed to food availability, just as David was saying. Um, but in this particular case, this is a, a food access problem driven by income losses rather than by um, rising prices. Um, food availability could be affected, of course, if these lockdown policies extend for longer, if they begin to bring rural areas into under some of these policies, which is not currently the case in many countries, and if labor is restricted. And that would all prevent um, crucial agricultural seasons from, um, from producing the food that is sorely needed. So that's the second point, that the food system is exposed. The third point, and this has been mentioned before, is that we are finding that it is the non-poor and urban households who we expect to suffer the largest income losses in both absolute and percentage terms. So this is because in most countries, the sectors that are facing lockdowns are mainly located in the cities, and they're more often in manufacturing and business services, which generally tend to um, employ better educated workers. But all of that said, it, poor households are badly affected, as we saw from David's um, presentation. And these households may be less able to cope with even small income losses. Um, the fact that it's urban households that are most at risk, that's very similar to what we saw back in 2008. But what is different today is that back then it was the poor urban households who were badly affected by price increases. Today it is uh, the higher income households being affected by income lockdown, but by income losses. So of course there's much that, um, that we don't know yet. Um, and as I said, if we start to see um, if we start to see agriculture being adversely affected, then we could start to see those food prices rising, especially if those urban markets are heavily constrained and prevent um, consumers from getting access to food. And if we start to see that happening, then we may start to see more of the burden shifting um, to rural areas and falling more squarely on the, on poorer households. So, so to conclude, there are certainly many similarities with the 2008 crisis, but there are also some very important differences. So what we're seeing is that, um, as I said, the economic losses are much deeper and they're going to occur much more quickly than they did in 2008. And so that means having strong social protection systems and policies in place will be absolutely crucial in the short run. We're also seeing that it's falling incomes that is creating food insecurity rather than rising food prices. And you'll remember back in 2008, one of the silver linings from that crisis, if there was one, was that at least we were seeing higher prices benefit poor farmers to some extent. Um, we're also seeing that urban and non-poor households are the worst affected, right? And the, the problem here is that they may be, and they, they traditionally have been, more effective at mobilizing the policies that cater to their own interests. And so the pressure is on us to make sure that the poor are included adequately in recovery efforts. And finally, we expect the recovery to be quite slow. So, and unlike in 2008, when um, what, what we're expecting is government's recovery efforts are going to be severely hampered, particularly by lower government revenues coming in because of these lockdown policies. And what's different today is that many developing countries may struggle to borrow abroad um, because of their already high debt burdens. So, we ex so governments are very soon going to face some very tough choices and they're going to need to prioritize policies and investments that cater to the short-term needs to cope with the crisis, but they need to somehow do this in a way that doesn't jeopardize 
those gains that we've been making over the last two decades to transform food systems and reduce poverty and food insecurity, especially in places like Africa. Thanks very much. James, thank you very much. Our last speaker is John McDermott. John is the director of the CGIR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health, and he will share some insights on the health and nutrition implications and impacts. John, over to you. Thank you, Rajul, and uh, good day, everyone. Now, you've heard from my colleagues on the early and potential impacts of the COVID pandemic in low and middle income countries. And they've outlined a broad area of impacts on food security, nutrition, and poverty. And these are pretty dramatic impacts. And they've also described policy and investment options to keep trade and markets working and expand nutrition and health and public safety net programs. Now, the key uncertainties, as James pointed out, is that on, in their impact projections is the extent of the spread of the virus how can it be controlled and over what time frame? And this is very uncertain, especially as COVID moves through South Asia and Africa. Now the feasibility and effectiveness of control measures in South Asia and Africa and how it shapes the epidemic curve will differ from what we've seen in China and in high income countries. Now critical to reducing disease transmission is physical distancing. For poor people, this is an incredible challenge, given the high population densities and shared living spaces, particularly in urban slums, and also that many poor people need to move daily to work and to get food. Their survival depends on movement. The other basic public health measure is hand washing. Poor people often don't have access to clean water and soap. Now, once people become sick, the health systems for the poor in South Asia and Africa are completely under-resourced. Africa has one doctor for every 4,000 people. Uh, Latin America for 4,000 people has six and uh, high-income countries have 12. And similar gaps uh, exist uh, for professional health staff and for health facilities as well. Now, as the virus spreads, monitoring through testing and contract tracing are potential tools that could be very important. And these are being successfully used in Korea and Germany, but not in all high-income countries. Monitoring is likely to be more challenging in resource-constrained South Asia and Africa. However, I'm hopeful that there will be considerable African and South Asian ingenuity applied to feasible solutions for COVID control. Community networks can be important responders, as was shown during the HIV AIDS crisis and follow-up phases. While COVID sneaks into communities rather than announcing itself like Ebola, community crowdsourcing of sickness with traceback could be useful and is already being employed in Lagos. One can also imagine that being linked to the innovative ways that Africans and South Asians use mobile phones for information sharing, financial transactions, and service delivery could be very useful in this type of crisis. For poor people, the health, food, income, and other shocks will all come together 
and be very consequential. We will need to support governments in implementing actors to quickly, to learn quickly in adapting and balancing the different health, economic, and social interventions that they need to make to mitigate COVID. The short and long-term benefits to the poor and vulnerable, if we can do this better rather than worse, will be enormous. And as has been seen in other epidemics, such as avian influenza control, interventions are largely shaped by the powerful rather than the interests of the poor who tend to suffer disproportionately. This is something we really need to watch out for. Thank you. John, thank you very much. All of you have heard from six of our speakers, and we'd like now to move into the Q&A session of the program. As I'd mentioned earlier, we'd like to hear from as many of you as possible. So please do submit your questions being brief in the chat box or using Twitter uh, or on Twitter using the hashtag AskIFBRI. Feel free to share your name and institution if you wish. Speakers, I'm happy to tell you we've received many questions, and so I will ask you to be similarly brief in your response so we can have as much engagement as we possibly can. Let me move now to our questions uh, that we have received. The first question I will direct to David Laborde, and that question is from Aaron Ross, a journalist from Reuters in Dakar. Question is, what impacts are you seeing on cross-border trade in sub-Saharan Africa? What countries in the region are especially vulnerable to trade blockages? David, over to you. Thanks for the question and thanks for all the, the participants. So what we see today is um, first in the policy realm, as in the past, meaning as in 2007, 2008, even countries that are in the same economic community, so where free trade should be allowed, we have seen some bad players, meaning that they are blocking their shipment of grains, uh, from one country to another. So it's not widespread yet, but I would say the, the old demons are there. Uh, now, just the fact that there is also control point and there is restriction in terms of what truck drivers can do, uh, we see a few distortion, but there is no major blockade. Still, once again, some policymakers are trying to prioritize their own community. And sometimes uh, restricting export is not just a smart move overall but they even hurt their neighbor when we should see a bit more solidarity. David, thank you. Next question I will direct to Purnima. And this question is from Mahesh Chander, ICAR, uh, Indian Veterinary Institute in India, who asks, how can school meals be continued when schools are closed? What possible way could there be for providing nutritious meals to prevent malnutrition among children in India? Purnima, over to you. Thank you. That's a really excellent question because one of the biggest disruptions we have seen uh, due to the fallout of COVID-19 in many, many countries has been uh, disruptions to education and resultant disruptions to the um, school meal program. So what we know so far in, in India is that different states are approaching this quite differently. Um, and some states are actually home delivering the ingredients. Um, so in a sense, the school meal becomes an, uh, a food transfer to the families. Uh, we don't know what the, the impacts of those have been. We don't know whether the food that's transferred to the households actually gets consumed by the children. We don't know if that's enough. We don't know if families are gonna be able to supplement that to ensure 
uh, nutrition. The same is happening for some of the, the other food transfer programs. So even in the ICDS, some states are home delivering um, the food rations. But again, we don't know. So I, you know, I, I think there, it's, it's wonderful to see the, um, uh, the innovations that, that program implementers are taking in different parts, uh, especially of India. But you know, I believe this is going to be happening in other countries as well. Uh, but we just don't know if, the, if this is going to be uh, enough. And so, you know, I again, come back to saying we really need uh, sort of hand-in-hand -hand research investments or learning investments uh, that go along with these programmatic changes so we can learn more. Thank you. Thank you, Purnima. The next question I will direct to Shabo. And this question is from Jane Ambuko Lukachi of the University of Nairobi in Kenya. And what kind of support would you propose for the SMEs to ensure that they continue to play the critical role in the food supply chain? Over to you, Shabo. Uh, in China, the most important policy options to let the MCEs resume production as soon as possible. So if stayed staying too long, many SMEs will go bankrupt. So after the coronavirus is under control, the most important policy to let them to resume production. Be because it's very hard for the government to provide massive subsidies to SMEs because of the limited budget in developed countries. Thank you, Shabo. The next question I would like to direct to James. And this question is from Adam Salberg, who is an MA student at the Friedman School of Nutrition. Question is, what role do you see disruptions in remittance economies playing in food and nutrition security in the months ahead? James, over to you. Yes, that's a, that's a very important global shock that many countries are facing. So for example, in a country study that we did for Egypt, we found that a lot of the economic damages are coming through reductions in remittances. Um, of course, it's going to vary by country. And so there are countries in Central Asia where remittances are absolutely crucial for the incomes of many households. Um, and there we would expect to see, again, incomes falling. And that is the primary mechanism right now for undermining food security. So in those countries where remittances are crucial, um, and that is many countries in the world, but more so in some than others, we would expect to see food insecurity worsening much more in those, in those particular countries. James, thank you very much. The next question I will direct uh, to, uh, jo to John McDermott. And this question comes from Stephen Jaffe. Are any of your practitioner colleagues on the ground seeing good examples of moderate social distancing in the context of traditional community markets to keep them running, yet reducing risks from crowds and hygienic conditions and practices? John, over to you. Thank you, um, and good to hear from you, Steve. Um, the, um, yeah, we're seeing some uh, in both kind of informal markets. Uh, we're seeing where markets disperse a little bit. Um, India's taken a huge program of actually moving people out of the large wholesale mandis, but allowing them to disperse and sell in different places. We're also seeing it in kind of markets for food distribution as well as where on informal uh, and even quite formalized systems are being set up where there's separation of things when people are queuing up to get food being distributed. So there, there is some, and, and we'll need to see more of this to counteract the, the kind of food system, the fresh food system shocks that James was talking about. 
John, thank you so much. Next question is also for David Laborde, and this is from Saskia Osendarp for the Micronutrient Forum. The question is, do your models also look at nutritious foods, i.e. Nutri nutrient-dense foods, such as fruits and vegetables, and animal source foods? COVID may compromise the availability of these foods. David, over to you. Yes, the, the various models we use at IFPRI uh, are, are taking into account these different products because first, they're a very important part of the, uh, the food that people consume, but also their economic active value is pretty high. So yes, we consider them and actually they are impacted by the current crisis in two ways. First, with the fall of income, you are typically cutting this type of product first. Uh, they are not staple and they are much more sensitive to any income reduction. And at the same time, their value chain is more sensitive to the type of disruption we are talking about. They are labor intensive. If you pick up crops, you need workers, domestic workers, migrants, seasonal workers that are blocked. But also uh, when you have a slaughterhouse, a meat packing um, industry, you need workers. So we have this double uh, constraints on this specific product. And of course it has nutrition consequences for the population today and potentially tomorrow. David, thank you. Next question is from Thin Lewin, journalist with the Thomson Reuters Foundation. And Thin, it's lovely to hear from you. This question is directed to James. Question, James talked about country level studies. Could you say which country studies have been completed? And could you give another example of how the COVID-19 control measures could affect another country besides Nigeria? Over to you, James. Yes, thanks. So we have a number of country studies underway and we've given preference to those countries where we have country programs because we're not just, there are a lot of models and a lot of numbers out there that are being thrown around. We really want to make sure that we're not just adding to the noise, but we are doing analysis that can prepare governments to, to make those tough decisions about where to put their scarce resources in the future. So we are working in a, mostly in African countries, in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Mali, uh, Malawi, um, Ethiopia, Tanzania and Kenya. Um, and then we're also working in Asia, in Myanmar um, and in Indonesia right now, but we are looking to expand as we can um, into, into other countries. Um, I think to come back to the point that, um, that, to come back to the point that John was mentioning, I think there are a number, we've got some work already looking at food retailers. I think one of the most important measures is not to constrain those food markets. And that's happening across uh, countries, not just in Nigeria. So I want to emphasize that. And in India, they're also allowing people to trade. So instead of going the Nigeria route of limiting the number of hours that um, food retailers can trade, they're actually extending the number of hours and allowing them to trade after midnight. And as John was saying, allow them to trade um, outside of the markets closer to home. So travel times are less for both the, the sellers and for the people looking to buy. And I think that's, that's one of the key messages, sort of key areas of concern that I think we should take forward, um, that there are options out there. Thanks. Thank you, James. The next question is from Ahmed Kablan, USAID Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, Nutrition Center, Food Safety Division. And lovely also to hear from you, Ahmed. And this question I will direct to both uh, Shabo and also to David Laborde, beginning with Shabo. The question is, how do you see this affecting the informal market systems in LMIC, the low and middle income countries, thinking about measures to reduce transmission, lockdown, social distancing, and how that could be applicable to these systems? So essentially the question is, how do you see this affecting the informal market systems? 
in these low and middle income countries. Shabuf, do you want to share experiences from China first and then over to David Laborde after that? Shabuf. Thank you. That's a very good question. Uh, based on all study in China, we find that the disruption logistic is a big problem for agriculture related business like livestock and mechanization services, pollination services. Uh, so in developed countries, agriculture sector is much larger than developed countries. Uh, so the impact probably is larger. And then when you think about how to uh, reduce the dis disruptions in logistic after lockdown policies in place, maybe open up some green uh, paths for agriculture business, for trucks, etc. Thank you, Shabo. David, any comments from your side? Yes, very shortly. First, it's very important to acknowledge that in a large number of countries of the developing world, these informal markets play a critical role on the daily life of people. And because they are informal, first, you have to not forget that the workers that are part of this system, and by the way, in which a lot of women are very active, do not have social protection, do not have unemployment payment. So you block them, you cut their source of income, and you create more inequalities. So any measure targeting this type of market have to not forget about the people that are part of the system. The second aspect is also what James was already referring to, is when you want to regulate them in order to limit uh, social interaction or that they do not become a location of spread of, of viruses, you have to do it in a smart way. If you reduce the number of hours where you open the market, you are going to lead to more concentration when actually you want to have more distanciation. So this is where also comparing experience from one country to another is important. And I would just conclude that some countries are innovating, some policymakers are coming with a lot of very good ideas. So learning from what other countries are trying, especially countries in Asia that have been a bit in advance in this COVID crisis in terms of, of spreading of the virus is quite important for, for Africa. Thank you, David. The next question is for Purnima, and this question is from Prachi Salve, journalist from India Spend. And the question is, many Indian states are stopping many nutrition programs and other outreach programs. What do you think the impact will be on nutritional status of children and mothers? Over to you, Purnima. Um, thank, thank you, Prachi. Uh, great to have that question from you. Um, uh, so at, at this point in time, I, I think what we know is that there are some changes to the nutrition programs. We haven't um, seen yet any all-out stoppages, but as I mentioned earlier, there's uh, critical changes being made, uh, especially in light of social distancing, and that affects especially behavior change programs. Um, India's national uh, nutrition mission has really relied on community mobilization and uh, women's groups and people coming together to discuss uh, and, and strengthen awareness around uh, nutrition practices. And this is going to be very seriously affected by um, what needs to happen to, to, to limit the spread of COVID. Other aspects of the nutrition programs, um, I'm hoping will be able to come back uh, you know, as we move out of the lockdown lockdown period. Uh, but again, it's something that we really need to keep our eyes on to see which elements of the programs change and over what timeframes, because the impacts on, um, on nutrition are really going to depend on that. So let me just leave that here again. Big unknowns really need to keep our eyes on this and, and understand, um, you know, how the nuances of this are going to play out over the next few months. Thank you.
Thank you, Purnima. We have a lot of questions still coming in, so I'm very excited. And let me take as many of them as I can. The next question I would like to direct to both Yo and David Laborde briefly. And this is from Rupak Mantwaka with WFP in South Africa, who asks, what are the opportunities to learn, if any, from COVID-19 in terms of policy and program responses to climate challenge? If uh, Yo or uh, David would like to briefly comment on that, that'd be great. Begin with Yo first. Um, this is it's a very good question. It's, uh, it's also a very difficult question, I think. I think right now, well, the, I think there are similarities in the sense that both are really global problems, okay, which is very clear. The difference, I think, is that COVID is just like, it's like lightning that has just spread in a very, very short time, affecting everybody. Our, clo our climate change, obviously, is something which has been growing very slowly or relatively slowly over time. So in that sense, it is different. I think the issue is really in terms of, uh, there's an important political economy issue here in terms of if we can mobilize so many resources to deal with a big um, global crisis as COVID, can we also use the same mechanisms to mobilize resources to deal with or to address climate change problem? I think that's a very important issue. I do not have an answer to that question, but that's certainly something we should be thinking about and drawing lessons for. Thank you. Thank you, Yo. David, any comments from you? Yes, so I, I think that the world has crises and we will always have crises and the climate crisis may lead even to more weather shock. So now the question really is how much we learn from one crisis to another, what type of mechanism, what type of institution we have developed. And I think in the last 20 years, actually global governance have made some progresses in the sense that with the last food price crisis that was driven both by climatic events but also bad policies, uh, the G20 has tried to implement some coordination mechanism and informa information mechanism like with the AMIS group. So there is some good aspect on this. Now what we see that countries are still selfish. They try to protect themselves. Sometimes they actually take measures that doesn't really protect themselves, but at least give the, um, the feeling for policymakers that they act. And this is really something that we have to deal with because with the uh, cri climate crisis that, that is already uh, appearing in some places, but we will continue. What level of solidarity, what level of coordination we have between countries will be key. Otherwise, what's going to happen is the big countries will be able to implement policies that will protect them, and they will export their problem. They will export the volatility of, of uh, agricultural markets to the smaller countries. So really, how we can build a better governance uh, in the future is key. And from each crisis, we can learn and we can improve. Thank you, David. The next question I'd like to direct to Poenema, and this is from Jess Fanzo. Jess, lovely to hear from you. Jess's question is, there seems to be higher morbidity, mortality of COVID-infected patients and obesity. Does Poenema have any insights into the mechanisms as to why this is? Poenema, over to you. Uh, great to hear from you, Jess. Unfortunately, I, I don't. Uh, I think um, what's uh, what's interesting about COVID-19 is we are learning so much, uh, literally every day, and seeing new papers, um, and there's some really fascinating analysis, as you pointed out, um, in uh, coming out of the U.S. in terms of the interplay of comorbidities and, and uh, mortality, including obesity and other things, but we just don't know all the mechanisms. And this is, um, you know, I, I think as we move into low and middle-income countries, we have the other side of the 
the malnutrition spectrum as well. And we just need to keep our eyes. And you know, I really hope that those scientists that understand the cell mechanisms and the ways in which uh, the human body is reacting to this are going to help us uh, understand it. There's just so much to know. Uh, and I'm very concerned about this, both for uh, in the context of increasing overweight and obesity in low and middle income countries um, as well. So sorry, I'm reading a lot, but I don't have the answers to that question. Thank you, Purnima. Let me take the last two or three questions. This question is directed to Yo Swinan, and this is from Devri Bona Vorvek, former senior policy advisor with the Akeen Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, uh, United States. Question is, how do we elevate the importance for funding by governments for agricultural development? The concern is that funding gets diverted to other areas post-COVID. Yo, over to you. Um. Hi, Devry. Uh, it's good to hear from you. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very important question, obviously, for us as well as an institution, but obviously also for anybody who cares about agricultural development and food security in the world. The issue is, I think, um, well, it's clear that tax revenues are going to go down. I mean, the recession is huge. I mean, the, the expenditures which are now being put on the table uh, for to sustain the economic, uh, either reduce limit the economic recession if you want and already try to stimulate growth. This is going to be, have tremendous impacts on whatever money is left over, budgets are left over to spend on other things. Then it is already clear that health is really jumping up on the policy agenda very strongly, both in terms of domestic investments in, in let's say, the rich countries, but also on the development agenda. And so this is definitely, although I think a lot of people recognize that the food system is really an important element in this whole story, that it will certainly create a lot of pressure from all kinds of sources to, um, uh, it's going to be harder actually to access the type of funding that we need. Thank you. Yo, thank you so much. The next comment is more of a comment, but perhaps James uh, would like to reflect on it. This is from Luke at the World Bank. Given different economic costs, health gain trade-off in Africa, should not everything be done to prevent spread in rural areas through testing, tracing, localized containment with community networks to safeguard maximum agricultural labor force from disease and thus next year's crop? Um, larger morbidity is to be expected, but the rural labor force should be safeguarded to keep food production going. James and John, if each of you wish to reflect on this briefly, beginning with James. Yes, thanks. That's a good question. We're very concerned about that. We just don't know um, where, what the impacts in agriculture will be since many parts of the world, the, the main cropping seasons haven't happened yet. So we've been fortunate so far. I think um, what you're asking is not, uh, you know, how do we limit the spread of the um, of the virus? And I think that applies uh, countrywide. Um, the advantages rural have, rural areas have, is that they're lower population density, um, and so I think there is this careful trade-off um, between providing that essential good that is food versus um, how to curb the, the long-term spread of the virus. And, and I think we we don't actually know what the right answer is. But but yes, we're very concerned if these lockdown policies continue and the virus starts to spread to rural areas, this could start to be a calamity both in terms of income losses and higher food prices. Thank you. John, final word from you. Yeah, it's really hard to separate out the health and the economics here and the, the people bring them together. And so particularly in, in places where production is very labor intensive, we're going to see big problems and where, where the cycles are short. So 
uh, as Shabo uh, described in China on livestock production, big issues. And you know, animals have to be fed every day, the cows have to be milked every day, uh, those kinds of things. So that's, it's, it's where the labor interacts with the food and, and the health that are, we see big issues. Thank you, John. There were so many of you that we could not hear from you, and I apologize to you. John Conrad, Zolile, Bezon, Juan Egas, Alexis Heather, Mark Cohen, former IFPRI, Janice Cox, Sibrata, Jodri, Brian Bruns, Mukesh, Faisal Ali, Linda Bayer, Nazrul Islam, Ali from Egypt, Obreva, Saloni, Charulata, Danielle, Mahmoud, and so many of you. Please accept my apologies that we could not take your questions and comments. But let me tell you that we will be having a second COVID event on April 30. Uh, and I hope that you will stay tuned in for that. But before I come to the close, I'd like to give each of our speakers 10 to 20 seconds to do their final takeaway message for each of you. And they will go in turn, beginning with John and uh, then followed by James, Purnima, Shabo, David, and Yo. So let me begin with you, John, and please each of our speakers come briefly immediately. Thank you, John. Thank you. Um, so for poor people, sectors don't matter. The health and economic responses uh, and impacts come together and have interacting consequences. So we, we really need to look at it from a people perspective. Yes, um, I would say, you know, even though food is deemed essential, I think what we're seeing now is that food security is not shielded from this, um, from this crisis. Even though urban areas are affected worse, we're seeing spillover effects into rural areas and a decline in rural welfare. And going forward, we know there are going to be even more needs, but with even fewer resources. And so we need to stay focused on prioritization and helping governments um, recover. Thank you. And, and for me, uh, the world has made a lot of progress on nutrition, as, has, as have countries like India. Um, it's really important that we, don't, uh, that we keep our eyes on the ball on that as well as um, the COVID-19 situation evolves. Uh, because we certainly can't afford a backsliding on uh, something as critical for human capital development as nutrition. Thank you. So in China, the COVID-19 has landed a heavy blow to SMEs, which generate huge number of employment. Although China, in China, COVID-19 is under temporary control, SMEs still face headwinds because of disruptions in global uh, supply chain, also decline in external demand. So we do pay more attention to SMEs in China, also in other countries. So the, the COVID-19 crisis is really a global crisis. And I think it has put even more light on the problem of inequalities we have within countries and uh, across countries, actually. And how we are going to manage this question of inequalities, especially in the coming years when we will have to deal with all the debt in, that we are generating today, because part of the world is living on debt today, not only the SMEs, but also government, that will be key. So how we deal with inequalities to be ready for the next crisis, I think is for me the most important thing we have all to think about. And of course, in a globalized world, how we share and we show solidarity financially, but also through trade leakages, it will be key. Thank you, David. Um, let me just end with a few uh, words on, on the work of IFPRI in this world, in this COVID world. 
I think research is very important right now just to bring out more information, more insights, things not just what the best policies are, but first of all, what is going on? As Purnima has very nicely illustrated, though, it's very hard for uh, research to go out. We see research itself is heavily affected. We rely very heavily on field experiments, on surveys, etc. All this is also disrupted. So I've been very impressed with the entrepreneurship and the innovation that our IFPRI researchers, but also the partners we work with, our donors, have basically shown over the past um, couple of months. And I want to thank all of them. And I hope that we can continue to do as good research as possible to provide information into both for the people themselves and also for those who have to make important policy decisions. Thank you. Thank you, Yo. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this important discussion. As I mentioned, this is the first in a series of events we are planning on COVID, and we encourage you to join us on April 30, and more information on that will be coming shortly. But before that, on April 21, we have another virtual event, and that one is on agricultural support reform and GHG emissions, featuring Will Martin, Valeria Pinheiro, and Tatwila Madhur Gautam. So please do join us at that event. And finally, please visit IFPRI's COVID-19 spotlight page at www.ifpri.org or just Google IFPRI and COVID-19 and you'll find a lot of resources. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a good day, everyone. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you.